Welcome to Poptopia. Welcome to Poptopia, your podcast for all things pop culture. I'm your host, Paul French, and it is Friday, January 9th, 2009. And on today's show, we finally put the end to 2008. I know, it ended a week ago. But I'm going to do my top fives, my bottom fives, and then we'll talk about it from there. Well, actually, we won't talk about it anymore. Because 2008 will be dead to us, people. Dead to us. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's start. Uh, you know, let's just get right to it. We'll start with the uh, top movies. All right. Number five. And I guarantee you this isn't showing up on any other critics top five list of the year. Um, and I've even read a few. Uh, number five is Eagle Eye. Eagle Eye. You're like, what? That Shia LaBeouf movie? Really? And I'm going to be honest with you. The, the main reason for this is because it, this was a pretty disappointing year for movies for the most part. There were definitely a few very bright spots, at least five of them that I can see. And, um, you know, so a few bright spots, but, you know, overall fairly dismal. And, um, you know, certainly in the summer, you know, the things that looked great weren't and and so forth. Now, I will say this uh, with Eagle Eye, it required huge suspension of disbelief um, as far as the plot went. But the fact was that at least... At least most of the plot at the time that I saw it, which was uh, the second week open, was was mostly a surprise. Did you know where it was going to go? Of of course you did. You know it was it was pretty obvious sort of what what track it was going to take once you sort of got to to the next point. But it was the it was the idea that wow, a movie that didn't get spoiled for me in the trailers really. I, I don't know. So so that just that just really worked for me. Uh, it was it was a fun night at the movies. And when I get to the bottom five, you'll see that there were a lot of not-so-fun nights of the movies. Uh, number four, Milk. Um, I actually finally got a chance to see the documentary, The Times of Harvey Milk, uh, this this past, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks back. And, you know, obviously really loved it. And and then got a chance to to catch Milk. Um, you know, this is this is a, an incredible performance by uh, Sean Penn. You know, usually it's kind of, okay, it's Sean Penn playing... The uh, the you know the Irish hood. It's Sean Penn playing the uh, the developmentally handicapped guy with the kid. You know, it, it, but you can you totally you know it, it's he doesn't disappear into the character. It's it's Sean Penn, but he really actually disappeared into into Harvey Milk this time around, and it was it was really interesting. I think part of it was just the uh, the locations that they used, uh, you know, obvious authenticity there, even to the point of filming a lot of the camera shop stuff in the old camera shop, which was kind of a neat a neat touch. Um, you know, and and to add to that, Josh Brolin as Dan White was, ugh, I mean, was this not a great year for, for Josh Brolin? I mean, come on. This guy uh, is, is going to do some huge things. And it's so funny that before No Country for Old Men, people were kind of like, Josh Brolin, yeah. I mean, he was even when he was in Grindhouse, it was, you know, kind of a wow, it's it's me. He, he must have been thinking at the time, you know, wow, it's me and all, all these guys who are kind of past their their thing. And, you know, everyone everyone loves what they do and they're good at what they do. But, you know, what does this say about my career? Well, it says you were just getting started, sir. And uh, and good on you. Um, number three. And nobody is more surprised than me to have in my top five a Pixar movie. I tend to be fairly disappointed by a lot of them. Um, I find that some uh, they, they often miss the, miss the mark on the uh, on the double level and and the doing stuff that is for the uh, for the grown-ups in the audience. But you know, Wally, this this was not just an achievement in 
computer-generated uh, animated movies. This was a, a huge quantum leap in, in, in just filmic storytelling and the fact that they were able to do this in the way that they did. I mean, I was discussing this movie with a friend of mine the other day, and what he said was that... Wally is a movie where they're going to be dissecting the first 40 minutes of that movie in film classes for years to come, you know, and and so just from that opening shot as we as we see the world from space and we zoom in and we zoom in, I mean, obviously an impossible shot in reality, but these guys make it real and um, and they totally made me buy it. And, and, and not only that, but they totally made a movie where you can have, you know, 40 minutes without dialogue, without any real any real dialogue. Um, and make it work, and they really did. So, so kudos to the Pixar guys for continuing to uh, to push the envelope, and maybe you got me back. All right, number two, Iron Man. Come on, Robert Downey Jr. playing uh, playing you know alcohol or reformed alcoholic superhero Tony Stark. Come on, yeah. So uh, Iron Man, you know they they got this right. It's and it's definitely one of the. Uh, one of the best superhero films out there because you know they, they got the the kind of the mythology part of it right um and and you know i don't even as i've said before you know i never care what kind of liberties they take with the characters although i found they took precious few here um but what they really got right was was having fun with it and the fact that this is a guy who um you know he's atoning for for the things he's done sure there's there's that angle to it but it's also the fact you know i mean Come on, it was it was ages before he even got into the armor, and and um, so much of the movie was spent on him building the armor, and yet it was fascinating. I, I say kudos to uh, to John Favreau, and uh, you know for uh, you know making sure that that what he put, what he what he directed was it was a strong script, and that he that he brought out the strengths in it, and for pulling together a movie with an outstanding cast. And I recognize that's not just him involved in that, but. Uh, you know, he was definitely at the forefront. And, you know, it, it was a, you know, let's hire actors that are probably better than the material. But that's okay. Because they're just going to elevate it. And they really did. Number one, no surprise here, The Dark Knight. I mean, come on. Was it only 11 years ago that we had Batman and Robin? You know, Batman with the little nipples on the, uh, on the costume. Yeah. yeah. Alicia Silverstone is Batgirl, who was Alfred's niece. Yeah. Well, you know, Christopher Nolan certainly pulled this out, and I, I'm a I'm a big Chris Nolan fan, without a doubt. Um, and I really think that he, you know, he did a great job with Batman Begins. You know, there were some there were some flaws, and it kind of degenerated into a big car chase movie at the end of it. But uh, but you know, when you get down to it, The Dark Knight. You know, this isn't just a great super superhero flick. It's just a, a really solid movie. Um, you know the. Um, the characters' motivations all stand out. the The story is great. The uh, it, it's shot beautifully, considering the uh, the huge amount of uh, of black that they got to use for it. Because it's a dark movie, um, and and you know, but still lots of fun. And I was absolutely glued to the seat, despite the two really large bottles of water that I drank, and uh, I had to you know stay around uh, through the credits too, because hey, the negatives were cut by Mo Henry. And I always say what any what any movie needs, any movie that's not quite up to snuff needs is the negatives cut by Mo Henry. This one was cut by Mo Henry. It, this see, it just proves it. It just proves it. All right. So that's the top movies. Let's look at the bottom, the bottom of the barrel here. 
Vantage point at number five, a premise which sounded great, you know, the whole uh, look at everything from different points of view, uh, but the their own conceit kind of falls apart partway through the movie, and um, and and it just unravels from there. Uh, as well, it, there is that certain aspect of, you know, maybe we don't need to have the point of view of of this guy repeated by the guy who was sitting right next to him the whole time, because maybe it's not that different. And uh, and so, you know, it, there was cer a certain sort of art loss to that. And um, and again, we got the obligatory car chase and uh, it, it really just disappointing overall from the promise of the premise to what they delivered. It, it really wasn't there. And, you know, considering the talents of the cast that they had involved I mean, you had Forrest Whitaker, you had uh, Matthew Fox, you had Dennis Quaid. Um, Sigourney Weaver, who was completely wasted, by the way. And, uh, you know, it, a lot of great actors in there and and really not giving them much to do. To do. Now, I did hear um, the Creative Screenwriting Podcast where they interviewed the screenwriter for this. And, um, you know, here's a, here's a guy who's kind of like, well, it's probably going to make some money, so I'll leave my name on it. But Wow. Uh, it went through a lot of rewrites and a lot of a lot of changes. So I'd be really interested to see sort of what that story was supposed to be in in the in the uh, beginning. Number four, Hancock. I mean, come on, it's a superhero flick with Will Smith. It's gonna be lots of fun, right? Not at all. I mean, I, I was really I I'd say probably this was the one that had the furthest to fall from what I was hoping for to what I got. And, and so, yes, it is, you know, completely my expectations and, and, and that sort of thing. But there was just some, some plot points that, that were just kind of what, where did that come from? And uh, things that came out of nowhere, things that were just way too contrived. And, um, and it really took me out of it. And also, you know, I think I just don't dig Will Smith as the, as the, uh, as the schlub. And I, and I don't buy it either. Uh, that said, there was uh, there was a pretty solid performance by Jason Bateman, and I hope to see him in a lot more movies, especially an Arrested Development movie. Number three, Wanted. Expectations weren't high, but I was figuring this would be a cool uh, action flick, you know, just sort of one of those one of those straight up, uh, you know, here's the slow motion scene, that kind of thing. And, and there was a lot of that, but this movie was just a, a mess plot wise, and and really. You know, it's it's one of those things where you had really no one to to truly root for. And um, yeah, I guess it just didn't work for me. I guess it's just, you know, a, a, a combination of unlikable characters and 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 kind of a meandering story that was a lot more style than substance. And what the hell is with that whole loom thing anyway? So that's that one. And get smart. All right. Now, I, I reviewed this one on the show, so I won't go into too much detail, but. Pick one. Either Maxwell Smart is really good at his job or he's a buffoon. It's one or the other. You can't go back and forth between the two. Really what it comes down to is, you know, he's supposed to be a buffoon and things just kind of fall into place for him. And and the fact that they couldn't get that right just led to every to a lot of the other things that just kind of kind of weren't funny. And uh this one was actually on a on a flight that I was on recently and um you know, here's the mark of a movie that that uh, that's kind of bad because usually I'll just watch anything that's on, 
and I couldn't bring myself to do it. So, so there you have it. Um, and number one, this is the movie I kind of like, like, like least, uh, and, and maybe not least because I think, I think Hancock disappointed me more. So maybe no particular order. This is the first one that popped to mind as I was putting together my, uh, my list of the uh, bottom movies and it's the incredible Hulk. I know I'm going to, I, I, I know I'm daddy. Yo, I know, I know. I've received feedback saying, you know, maybe you were a little too critical of it. And maybe I was. But the the fact of the matter was, uh, you know, this one just proved to me that, you know, maybe they shouldn't make Hulk movies. We've tried it from two different tracks, and, and I found both of them to be just horribly dull. And, um, and oh, but the, and everyone's like, whoa, but imagine if Ed Norton had got to do what he wanted to do with it. Yes, and then it would have been even more boring. You know, he wanted to get more into the psychological aspect. <sighs> yeah. All right. So that's uh, that's movies. Let's get into TV. Uh, number five. <clears throat> and, and again, we're, we're sort of no particular order here. But uh, so I'm going to actually do a couple of them right here. We got the Friday Night's Reprieve. Friday Night Lights uh, reprieve. This was uh, basically the fact that Friday Night Lights was in danger of getting canceled, but then got picked up again uh, um, by DirecTV through sort of a co-deal. So that was awesome. Um, and then Scrubs got picked up by ABC. You know, you always hear about shows getting shopped to other networks and... Um, and then it never happens. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things where where they say... Yeah, we'd love for it to get picked up by another network. But then the other network's kind of like, but weren't the other guys going to cancel it? Why are we going to pick up their sloppy seconds? What, what, what's that all about? But, you know, here's a couple of cases where where it's working. Uh, we'll get the rest, of, you know, those of us who don't have DirecTV will get to see Friday Night Lights soon, actually. I think it starts in, in a few weeks. And uh, I've, I'm certainly missing that show. Really, really enjoyed it. Number four, The Wire Finale. You know, for a show that was so sprawling, covered so much stuff, uh, they managed to get everything right on the button uh, with this one, and they managed to wrap up all of those disparate part of plot lines. So I say, you know, kudos to the uh, the producers of The Wire. You know, this is one uh, that is a total series is like a huge novel, and and they did a real good job with it. Uh, number two, and this is a show my wife and I really like like watching together, is Eli Stone. Here's a here's a show that has a positive message to say and does it in such a stylish way that I'm even willing to overlook the sort of neo-religious overlay to what's going on here. And that usually isn't easy for me to do. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I've really enjoyed this one. I'm going to be really disappointed to see it go. And um, yeah, so so maybe the the bottom of <laughs> something to add to the bottom of my list is that that uh, that a show like this is getting canceled, and I actually will kind of address that when I get to the to the uh, bottom list. Um, and number one, as it is most years, lost. And we're gonna go a little over the fifteen minutes because I figure rather than start a second episode to uh, to cover the rest of the stuff, I'll just uh, cover it here. So. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, lost, you know, managed to pull out another great season and and I think it's part of the focus of knowing that they're they're going to be finished soon and the idea that you know, not only are they going to be finished with the, with doing the show, they know where they're going, they know when they're when they're finishing, you know, down you know, two thousand two seasons down the road, at least from where this season started. And um so with that clear signpost, they can start laying the plot points in in a, a way that makes sense. And that's what they really did here and, uh, you know, brought in some new characters, you know, managed to sort of turn things on the air again with the whole time traveling angle and, uh, you know, and 
and really that I say that <laughs> spoils very little because uh, it's it's in the way that it's presented that's that's really what's interesting and um so yeah lost i mean it still continues and and actually i think after a couple of seasons where it kind of meandered because they didn't know how long they were going to have and that sort of thing and thought they were going to have to really spread it out they become a lot tighter focused and uh and in the writing and and the performances are just solid and you know, overall, the the show just really vastly improved uh, over over the sort of last season and a half, and I'm really looking forward to the um, fifth season premiere uh, later this month. All right, so TV at the, at the bottom, and and this is like reasons one through five, the writer strike, because here's the thing, hundred day writer strike cost the uh, the Los Angeles economy a couple of billion dollars. They're saying. For what? Because they really didn't accomplish a lot of what they wanted to uh, to get. They were like, okay, we want more on DVD residuals, and we want more on the uh, on the the online residuals, and and this and that. So DVD residuals are taken off the table right away. Like that's okay, because what we really wanted was the uh, the online ones and the uh, you know the whole thing with with uh, maybe we get uh, jurisdiction on animated move on animation and. Um, uh, reality TV. Wait, he's writers for that? Oh yeah. Uh, but so so basically that was taken off the table. Okay, so now the online thing. So they get this deal where it's basically you know after the first seventeen days, blah blah blah. You know, so after most of the downloading activity is done, then you can have a cut. Oh, and the cut's pretty small because we're selling them at uh, at, at loss leader prices. But they're saying you know it got us a hook into it. I don't think it was a big enough hook. And I think that a lot of people are going to say, uh, you know, a lot of pe- a lot of other people are going to say, hey, you're just going to be going back to the well for this again in a few years, and we're going to be stuck out of work again. I will say kudos to the uh, to the actors for uh, um, f- voting down the uh, saying that they weren't going to do a strike vote on the second. Um, you know, I reported in the last show that uh, a faction of the of the Actors Guild was looking at doing that, uh, and. You know, they, there was there was that schism within within the group, and it looks like that was taken care of, and they did the smart thing, you know, and uh, kept these people in jobs in in tough economic times. But here's another another victim of the writer strike is is the fact that a lot of shows, and I mentioned Eli Stone off the top. The fact is, a lot of these shows, um, they ended with the end of the writer strike, and they thought, well, rather than start up again. We'll just, you know, basically stick with what we've got and we'll come back and we'll kind of retool. And this happened with a lot of the new shows, you know, so this happened with like Dirty Sexy Money, uh, Pushing Daisies, um, Chuck, you know, that's that sort of stuff. And, and Heroes did it to a certain degree as well. And um, so what they all did is they basically disappeared in, in November or, you know, they kind of ran through until they ran out of episodes. So maybe January, February, and then they were all done. And um when they came back, they came back, but not a lot of the viewers came back. And um, I think there's a certain case to be made for the shows that did say, you know what, we're coming back strong after the uh, after the strike, you know. And a lot of shows did that, you know. Uh, Desperate Housewives did that and saw a real resurgence in their ratings, and and certainly a creative resurgence leading into the new season. Um, Big Bang Theory, one of my favorite sitcoms from last year, managed to do this. They uh, they actually you know managed to 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 put out some more episodes and are actually doing better this year as a result. So what does this tell us? Maybe the idea of being out of people's minds for a long time, get them used to the idea of you not being around, 
and get them used to the idea that maybe I don't need to come back to that. I mean, come on, we've been seeing this for ages, especially in hour-long dramas where they started trying these long hiatus things in between. You know, it's like, okay, so we'll run up to January, and then we won't come back until March. And when they came back, they'd shed about 5 million viewers. And wasn't this a clue? Wasn't this a clue that maybe, just maybe, being out of people's minds for eight or nine months, it makes them even more likely to not have to come back because they've gotten used to life without you. So I think there was some bad uh, decisions made um, on the producer's side of things, and uh, and, it, and it really hurt things. I, I think the whole thing, considering what they got, I, 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 you know, I think the whole thing ended up uh, not benefiting anyone. And and a lot of the writers have, you know, they're they're fully fully thirst quenched with that Kool Aid, and uh, they will tell you that uh, that they did they did really well off this. And and they really didn't. So, all right, moving into comics. <clears throat> all right, my my top five. Uh, number five, true story. Swear to God, uh, this is by Tom Beland, and uh, and I and I picked this one out not because of any particular issue that came out uh, during the year, but rather because of the uh, the the archive edition that came out from Image. They did they they've started doing these these foam book uh, reprints, you know, much like the Essentials and the showcases that Marvel and DC respectively are doing. And uh, th and so this was the entire self-published run of True Story, I Swear to God. And I just fell in love with this book. You got a story about a guy who's, he, you know, he's single, lives in the Napa Valley, works for a newspaper. Um, one day he gets an assignment to go to Disneyland because someone else just doesn't want to do it. So he's, sure, yeah, I'll go. And so he goes and he meets this woman. And uh, she lives in, she's from Puerto Rico. And it's this whole thing about them having this long distance relationship and then uh, then coming together and just amazing. Just so, such a beautiful story, so well written. Um, it is f completely autobiographical. Uh, this is Tom's own story, he and his wife Lily. This is exactly how they met. And, uh, and so a lot of their life makes its way into the, into the strip and, or into the book. And, I gotta say, I, I just thoroughly enjoy this uh, th this title, and we'll we'll read it for as long as uh, as Tom decides to put it out. Number four, skyscrapers of the Midwest. I know, technically, not not uh, a two thousand eight uh, release, but the collected edition was. And I actually picked up a copy of it. It's a, a beautiful hardcover. Uh, this is from Madhouse Books. I picked this up at the uh, CGS Super Show in in Reading in September, and just again, just an incredible story. Um, <clears throat> it's it's really hard to describe, and and actually, I I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But this is a it's a real story about you know it's a real coming of age story, um, and the uh, characters are kind of anthropomorphized uh, animals, and uh, it's. Just this beautiful coming of age story, beautifully illustrated, um, and so much attention to detail in this book, and uh, and and I, I just I highly highly recommend it. And number three, a Jimmy Olsen special. Yeah, I know, a Jimmy Olsen comic. Usually when I see him on the cover of a comic, it's like, oh, I don't need to be reading this. But I, I'm going to tell you, this was a whole different thing. Because I really found that uh, that that this this one you know James Robinson wrote it so there's a clue that it's going to be pretty cool anyway, 
um, a thoroughly enjoyable story. You know, this this whole sort of investigation thing that he was doing, and uh, it ties into the new Krypton uh, series that's going on in the Superman books right now. Um, well written, well drawn, and uh, and just thoroughly enjoyable issue. Number two, the country nurse. Okay, Jeff Lemire. And I've talked about his book before, and this is part of the Essex County trilogy. And uh, he did first Tales from the Farm, uh, then he did Ghost Stories, and then uh, this one rounds out the the whole story and brings everything together. And um, you know, part of it is is just like as a as a part of Canadian identity, I understand a lot of this because I, I I know some of these people, um, but a lot of it has has more to do with just the fact because I think this this appeals well beyond any borders. Um, and uh, and you know it's 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 just a story about family. It's a story about uh, about regret. It's a story about paths not followed. And just again, uh, it's this sensitivity that Lemire manages to to put down on the page that is that is really incredible. And uh, and definitely made this a must a must have for me. It was like as soon as the country nurse came out, I was down at the store picking it up and uh, and I read all I read all three volumes back to back. So I read the first two sort of again uh, for the for the second time. And uh, and yeah, just again, highly recommended. Number one, The Stand. Yeah, Stephen King's The Stand uh, adapted as as a comic book, and this was the, the basically the first miniseries. This is sort of a number of interlocking miniseries, and the first miniseries covered the whole flu outbreak and the the Captain Tripp story, basically. And this is uh, beautifully drawn by uh, Mike Perkins, and and I don't know who the colorist is, and uh, I'm certainly remiss in not having that information at the ready, uh, but. Um, yeah, Mike Mike Perkins is just knocking it out of the park drawing this book, and uh, Roberto Aguirre Sarcasa, Roberto Aguirre Sarcasa, that's it, uh, is scripting it and uh, and and just knocking it out of the park, um, and this all has the approval of of the man himself. Uh, Stephen King's uh, sort of seen all this stuff, and uh, in fact, uh, Mike Perkins had mentioned uh, in an interview where on on Comic Geek Speak where he said that. Uh, that Stephen King had said how much he really enjoyed his design of the uh, of the Fran character, and uh, and he said, you know, that's an email I'm going to save forever. And I think that's just a really cool thing with uh, with that kind of involvement and the kind of level of detail that's in there. And uh, and I've been reading this, and 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 it's always the top of my stack, and it's it's the one that you know if I if I can't get to the store, I'll I'll go to another store and find it uh, because you know I, I just want to. It's one of those books where I just want to read it right away. And, and that's a beautiful thing. All right, the stuff on, on the worst side of comics, and I didn't get too far with this. I tend to buy only what I like, and I tend to sort of quickly drop those the, those things that I'm not liking. Um, so really, I kind of go with a couple of overall things. One of them is the Grant Morrison backlash. Okay, so Grant Morrison is a writer, is a guy who, uh, who kind of writes a lot of stuff that's more of a symbolic bent. And, um, and, and, you know, he's gotten really good at the subtext, sometimes at the sacrifice of the actual text, but, but often, you know, both are there. It can get pretty confusing at times. And a lot of people complain about that. And, um, and I think that, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan, but I think that the, that the way a lot of Morrison fans handle it is you just don't get it. And, you know, there's nothing worse than someone, you know, paying, paying three or four bucks for something 
really not liking it and then getting told, oh, it's because you don't get it. Oh, so not only have I been insulted by buying this thing that uh, that I didn't enjoy, but now you're going to tell me it's because I'm too stupid. So I always think that that's, uh, you know, I, I think that people like different styles of writing. Some people like writing with a lot of subtext. Some people, you know, just they just want to see stuff blow up. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that because there's there's plenty of people who, who write both. And so I think that, um, you know, that, that that kind of one of the worst things is because what it did is it divided a lot of fans. And, uh, and, you know, people got into a lot of arguments about it. And it's just, you know what? It does no one any good. If you don't like it, don't buy it. And uh, and if someone says they don't like it, don't try and convince them they're wrong because it's not going to work. You know, and this happened with Batman R.I.P. And, uh, and with Final Crisis, both books that I'm digging. Um, apparently not enough to get into my top five, though. And that's interesting. Um, the other one I had, and, and like I say, it was just kind of, you know, sketches here and there. And it was, uh, it was Secret Invasion 8. And I guess my main problem with the book was that they had a certain sort of narrative style going on in the in the preceding seven issues, and then all of a sudden that changed in the last issue, and uh, and it seemed kind of like you know okay everything's over everything's fine now, and you know I know they're going into this whole dark rain thing with the villains in charge sort of thing, and uh, I don't know how appealing that is to me uh, if at all, and so it may just uh, help to free up a little more a little more of the cashola. Um, because, you know, Amazing Spider-Man is still pretty fun. It's maybe number six fun. That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, I have blathered on for nearly half an hour, so I think that's it for today. So, comments, as always, are welcome at poptopiapodcast at gmail.com. Head on over to the forum at forum.poptopiapodcast.com and have a fantastic week. Bye.